Hello, bold and conscious leader. Welcome to our new and refreshed 2022 season of the Bold Conscious Connections podcast, where we bring to you people who have shown special courage, character, and consistency to express themselves fully. After all, as long as we're alive, we want to live a full life, don't we? So our guests that we bring demonstrate that they do not want to die with their gifts because we're all meant to be given gifts that we share with others. And this is how we play our part in raising our collective consciousness in this world through this podcast called Bold Conscious Connections. So without further ado, let me bring on our guest today. We say something is thought-provoking because it challenges your past way of thinking, your beliefs, just like COVID did. Then you meet someone who actually lives and practices what they preach. So what does Caprice Lee preach? Well, she knows that today's kids are our future. So she made her mission to challenge our age-old public school system and what it has been teaching our kids. She actually homeschooled her two daughters over the past several years. She's the author of two books, Healing from School and Instead of Schooling, two different books. Caprice has been around the block. Before she left the corporate world in 1998, she worked for two boutique consulting firms and also two U.S. senators. She now helps people turn their toughest challenges into opportunities. She consults with mission-driven entrepreneurs, parents who are new to homeschooling, and anyone who wants more peace, joy, and fulfillment in their lives. This conversation is full of so many learnings for those of you who perhaps want to teach your kids how to think and be effective in the real world. Or perhaps, you know, you know there is more to life than being simply busy. You know your kids best, as she says in my conversation with her. How are you supporting them to be truly fun-loving and living their lives fully? And there are so many incredible pieces here that I learned from, and I'm sure you will too. So let me get out of the way and have you listen to this fascinating chat with Caprice Lee. Well, I want to welcome Caprice Lee to this episode and our show. This segment of our Bold Conscious Connections podcast is really about bringing in bold entrepreneur tales, i.e. stories. You know, stories make the world go around. So stories are always interesting to hear. And everyone has a story to tell. I met Caprice a few weeks ago, and she has a great story to tell. And I was intrigued, and I really couldn't wait to have her on this show. So welcome, Caprice. Thank you, Raji. A pleasure to be here. You know, I'm going to put all your bio and who you are and what you do, rather, in the show notes, of course. But I'd like you to describe to the audience who Caprice is rather than what she does. Who am I? Well, I am a spiritual being in this uh, body-mind having a human experience. I'm also the mother of two amazing daughters who are 17 and 20, who I home educated. My oldest all the way through, she got a free ride to college, and then my youngest until she decided to go to public high school to have some friends. And I have, um, I guess, invested most of my career in doing business strategy consulting, executive coaching, life coaching. But also along the side, I've spent 20 years trying to inject innovation into the schooling system. So I've done a lot of things in that capacity from um, getting half a million dollars to start two charter schools, to global coaching programs for parents, to self-directed learning centers. So I guess, you know, that's me in a nutshell. I do my best to follow the golden rule, just to follow divine inspiration. 
Well, I love the beginning of that. So I feel like that's who you are. You, of course, dipped into what you do. You can't seem to get around yeah, that. But, <laughs> but it's been so formative in who I've become. Yes. You know, this podcast is really about bringing in, as I said, bold entrepreneurs, but also to convey that we're all connected in some ways. So, you know, whatever happens in our minds and thoughts and feelings that we're communicating out to the world or otherwise, or to the universe, you know, goes around and that's determining the unity consciousness, if you will, but what level of consciousness we're operating from. I was intrigued by your story when we met and heard about you. So the pivotal points in our lives make us then be or do what we want to be. And so you hit on a few things right there earlier. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about what were the turning points and what directions that got your life to in the direction that you're going based on events, etc. So what led to you for you to devote the energy that you devote to the subject of home education? And I wouldn't have done any work in education if I didn't have two daughters. I don't know, compelled me, I guess is what I'll say. Tell because, me more about that. Well, when I was 30 years old, I was working for a boutique strategy consulting firm. I had my MBA in finance from Carnegie Mellon. I was married. I mean, if you looked at me, you would be like, wow. I mean, she's got all the outer trappings of success. Like I checked off all the boxes, college, mm -hmm. graduate school, worked for two US senators. You know, I mean, I was making a lot of money and I came to the realization that I still felt very empty and unhappy happy inside. And so I started doing a lot of self-reflection, or I guess I came to the realization that I had built my life on society's values, not on my own. And so I followed the recipe for success. I was successful, but I was not happy. I was not fulfilled. I didn't find a lot of meaning in my work. You know, working with Fortune 50 companies, it was all just, let's make some more money. I pretty much tore up the foundation of my life and decided I would build it again on my own values. And at that time, I went through a coaching training program because I was building a consulting firm with two other women. So that was really eye-opening to me because what I did realize is that after so many years in school, I had learned to just live in my head and I was almost completely disconnected from my body. And so that was really the first part of me, like trying to reestablish a connection to my body. And that led to more spiritual inquiry. So by the time, you know, when I was 35, I got pregnant with my first daughter and I was thrilled. I was two months pregnant. I didn't know if I was going to have a boy or a girl, but I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do for school for this kid? Because I hated school. I mean, I was good at school. I did well. It opened some doors for me, but I just had spent the last five years trying to like reclaim my soul. And I did not want my kids to have a midlife crisis like I had. So that kind of set me on the path. And I read in Sun Magazine, John Taylor Gatto, who was a New York City school teacher, taught in some really rough neighborhoods. He was New York City School Teacher of the Year in, I think, the late 80s. So I read his acceptance speech and it just, it blew me away. It was like all of the things clicked. I was like, I know why I hated school because it was created for social engineering purposes to dumb us down, to disconnect us from our spirit and our intuition and our creativity and our genius. And so I had just kind of fought my way back out of that programming and I didn't want my kids to be programmed and institutionalized. Mm. That's so crazy to hear that because, you know, the whole world, I mean, for at least three or 400 years, maybe 300 years, the post-industrial revolution has been living this thing, right? It started in the late 1800s and it was a very well-designed social engineering program and Americans fought 
public schooling and the kids were marched to school at gunpoint. This mm. is the late 1800s, the early 1900s. So beyond the so by the revolution. Time, yeah. And by the time you come to World War One, most Americans are still in agricultural farms. And so they would do primary school. They would get basic literacy, numeracy, be able to read the Bible, and then they would quit. So the social engineers had to invent middle school and high school to keep kids in school longer so they'd have more indoctrination time. Mm -hmm. So schooling is a very unnatural thing. It's not something that's been with us for centuries. So when you said earlier that you know, when I asked you who you are, you said, I'm a spiritual human in this body. That's usually my answer too, you know, temporarily to do what we're here to do, to express ourselves. So if you were, when you were 30 years old, probably wouldn't have said that as to who you are because, so is the unhappiness and the lack of fulfillment that made that difference? Or was it the catalyst was that when your daughter, you needed to go to school and, and you said this, what am I going to do with this? And then you started examining, you know, John Gatto's thesis. And no, say, well, I had really begun my awakening process when I was 30. You know, as you know, it's it's a continuous process. Of it's course, not yeah. an event. We're never done. <laughs> right? There are depths and depths of understanding and um, connection. Um, so I'm still doing that because I, I had that awakening five years before my daughter. I mean, just ask the questions and be like, well, I don't know, but I know what I don't want. I don't want what they what I experienced. But, okay, well, here you went to Carnegie Mellon and, you know, had this amazing college programs and you went through, obviously you went through school to go to college and, you know, had your uh, master's as well. And then you couldn't possibly be thinking that, of course, money was the was one of the, as you said, the, the way that people determine success and, and how you were evaluated. But then when you had this personal experience, how does that stack up for you? Like, would you have done that again? But I mean, obviously you don't, you can't go back in time. So I, I guess the thing that you have to realize is when I went to Carnegie Mellon, it was, I don't know, a quarter of the price that it is now. Okay. And then I got a scholarship that paid for best woman student finance that paid for half my tuition my second year. So that was, you know, hard work. But also I was in college and graduate school pre-internet. Yep. So at Carnegie Mellon, we used email, but that was it. There was no, you know, mosaic browser that has now. So perhaps at that time, there was more value in memorizing information. And so when you look at the process of schooling and realize that it is still a lot of rote memorization, regurgitation and testing, it hasn't come up with the times. And the problem is when you see all these ed tech firms that are trying to innovate in yes. the space, they're not innovating because they don't understand how we're designed to learn. What they're doing is creating very complex surveillance systems so that they can track every thought, every emotion, every sensation, every movement that a child makes in school. And, you know, I saw an article recently that the Dallas Unified, which is one of the largest school districts in the country, has just rolled out this massive surveillance system in all of their schools. So there will not be one second when a student is not being surveilled. And I think that's terrifying personally. Of course, that's just, that is horrendous. That's, is it in a way attacking our First Amendment right to be free? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. These companies do not care at all about children's privacy. Mm. They are trying to track them from cradle to grave. You know, here comes a social credit system and all the crazy stuff they're doing. So there mm. are just so many reasons to educate your sons and daughters outside of public school, even private school right now. So I know you're an advocate for homeschooling. You've done that with your one of your daughters and the, and the second one to some extent. So to the extent that people who know or feel that in the public school system, and I guess we're talking about the public school system here, right? Or are we talking about any private school as well? I mean, 
majority, I think private schools can even be a little more difficult for children because they're so focused on competition and achievement sure. and getting into the Ivy League. So these kids are in like real pressure cooker situations. And I think that's why when you look at the more affluent school districts and private schools, those kids are suffering from depression, anxiety, and suicide rates that are off the charts, like Surely. even higher than during the Great Depression right now. Surely, though, with the internet and the advent of information versus knowledge, two different things. Knowledge does not equal wisdom either, but it's okay. We have the data, the information that's now available freely, the value of teachers. So do you think that there are teachers out there who are have a way of teaching that's different than perhaps back in the day when I went to school or you went to school? We don't have our, I mean, I see 22-year-olds coming out of college and don't know how to think. So that is clearly an issue because they're not ready for work and then they have to be put through some kind of a training and real experience right. is what then drives their growth. Forget the money aspect of that being the benchmark, but right. there's good teachers out there. So what do you advocate for good oh, teachers there? Absolutely. I mean, my daughter's even had some phenomenal teachers, but they even complain about the curriculum they have to teach because they don't have any control. It's all pretty much like nationalized curriculum. You know, you open up a high school biology textbook and every chapter is going to have the same title. It's the teachers are suffering as much as the students in this system. So I never want to demonize teachers. But the fact is that like 40% of teachers leave the profession in the first five years because they didn't sign up for this indoctrination camp. They really want to like bring out the genius of children and they can't do it in this system. So if they mm. went in for the right reasons, they realize I can't do it here. Well, just to zoom out, because I've been thinking about this for 20 years, yes. is what keeps K-12 frozen in place is the myth that the only path into adulthood is college. And right now we've got 56% of Americans don't think college is worth it. Over like around half of the people that got out of college with student loans don't think it's worth worth it. And Brian Kaplan, who's an economist who wrote this great book yes. called The Case Against Education, a third of people getting out of college had absolutely no cognitive gains in the four years they were in college. So for us to even think about redesigning K-12, we have to redesign higher ed and say, what do we want, you know, for four years and all of the student loan debt, like what would we offer? What, what's the prize mm -hmm. there? If people can conceive of like, we're, you know, we're talking about entrepreneurs, right? If they can conceive of building a good life and a business and a venture, instead of using that money for higher ed where you're not really gaining anything, why don't you invest that in building a company? Mm. You know, that's really, I think, where we're going because this generation is inheriting some very, very complex problems. And they are not being given the skills of creativity or imagination or problem solving or critical thinking that they need to solve these problems. That is fascinating because you're saying started not necessarily the K-12, but obviously there is something wrong with the curriculum because it's sort of stat and hasn't changed. But you're saying start at the higher education. Look at that as to where the what are we trying to build here in the society? I, I think if we could offer some real learning opportunities and some mentors and apprenticeships for younger people so that because they don't really have any like role models of people that have been successful yeah. without the traditional path. I mean, even though there is like the myth of these entrepreneurs who dropped out of college and created something amazing. If you look at their backstories, you'll find a lot of it was just government funded. You know, they, they're not really self-made. It's kind of, once again, mythology. Yeah. You know, I think when we were talking previously, I shared a study that blew me away that was commissioned by NASA in the late 60s. And they hired 
hired George Land and a team of researchers to help them figure out how to attract more geniuses to NASA. Yes. So George Land went out and surveyed several thousand five-year-olds and found that based on his creativity test, which you can look up on the, you know, take it yourself, um, he found that 98% of five-year-olds were creative geniuses because of the way they use their imaginations to creatively solve problems. Mm -hmm. So five-year-olds, 98%. They go back five years later and find that of these same group of kids at 10 years old, only 30% have this connection to their creative genius. By the time they're 15, 12%. And then they got so disappointed that they just kind of gave up. But George Land went out and then like surveyed adults and found only 2% of adults have this creative genius. It's not that they lose it, they lose their connection to it. And his conclusion was it was because of school. And he said that non-creative behavior is learned. Like, I really want people to hear that non-creative behavior is learned. So we come in as these curious beings full of light, full of wonder, full of joy. We just want to be in nature and we want to play and we want to explore and figure out who we are and how life works. And we're shut down, we're put in a box, we're made to sit still, shut up, memorize information. And you can see that by the age of like 10, third grade, like the light is dimming in these kids' eyes. And it's just, it's tragic. Tragic and it's unnecessary. Well, we all, you know, so again, it's well established. Well, all scientific studies have shown that you're basically locked into your persona or the personality by like in your early 30s. So I think that supports that thing. Now, it's his name, George Land. If he's concluding it's because of the school programming of society or teachers or, mm -hmm. you know, parents, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, you're born yeah. into, I mean, as, as somebody said the other day, Language, for example, is bulleted into you in the crib because that's it. You're if you're right. born in China, you speak Mandarin or whatever, and then if you live in another another country or live in the United States or were born here, you're speaking English. It's just how you are surrounded by because all of that affects you. So you have two books that I know uh, you've written: Healing from School, mm -hmm. and then the other one is called Instead of Schooling. Is that so two different books? Yes. Yeah. So I wrote Instead of Schooling in 2020, and I it, I didn't expect to write a book at that point. I was no longer working, you know, kind of in the education sphere. I was really doing, you know, business consulting and coaching. Yes. But as I saw all of these illegal unconstitutional lockdowns and masking and crazy stuff, I mean, it, I just realized like people would not be submitting to this if they hadn't been schooled. Because what I invite people to do is look beyond, you know, when people complain about schools and education reforms, they're like, oh, we need to reform sex education or we need to get CRT out of the classroom. And definitely. Like, mm -hmm. of course, obviously, but I want them to look beyond the school building and beyond like the neighborhood school or the teacher that they like and look at the actual process of schooling because it's the kind of hidden agenda and the implicit messages that children get that are so damaging. Mm -hmm. And what they're taught from the time they're five years old is to reflexively obey authority. And how do they do that? Well, they have to raise their hand to go to the bathroom. They have to, they need permission to do everything and they have no privacy. I see that there are probably some authoritarian parents who think that's just dandy. It isn't. It strips agency away from these young souls, which is okay to do if you're a religious humanist and believe that humans don't have souls, which is what 
John Dewey and the founders of Modern Schooling believe, they signed and wrote the Humanist Manifesto, which declares they want to create a society without God, and they want the teacher to be the new prophet of this society. I mean, they're telling you what they're up to, right? If you believe that your kids are empty vessels without souls, and they just need to be filled with information, and then send them to school. But if you like, I looked in the, the eyes of my newborn baby and I saw such tremendous wisdom in those eyes. It like blew me away. It brought me to tears. And she was literally like two days old. And I just looked at that little being, that little soul. And I was like, you have come here to teach me some valuable lessons. Sure. And I just wanted to protect their connection to the creator because you hear these amazing stories of what young children remember from the other side. So we're not meat sacks carrying a brown a brain that's like a computer that needs to be filled. That's actually not even how we learn. That's not how we know things. That's not how we innovate. I mean, here's a question for you, Raju. Where do your best ideas come from? When I'm walking in nature, sitting with my eyes closed and with maybe music's playing in the background, I'm not sure. Probably then. And why do you and think people that? Say, people say going, you know, showering in the bathroom because you're not really, you know. Right. These insights are almost like downloads. We don't know where they come from, but they come when you have a relaxed mind. And tell me how many minutes a day in school does a child get to relax their mind, you know, or even play in nature? Well, they're, they're um, supposed to be in class to do the thing that they're supposed to be taught. The rest of the time is when they're supposed to be creative. I, I don't know. I'm just being facetious. Yeah. But I was going back when I refer to your books. So surely you must think that the overlay that, okay, the reason people go to school and go to college, etc., there is already a, a goal of some sort that they have to fulfill, right? To make money or to pay for the bills. Otherwise, you know, how is this divine child that's born here, unless they're you're teaching them as a parent something clearly, right? Whether it's by mm -hmm. example or otherwise, what are the alternatives? What would you advocate instead if you had to start life all over again today in this right. human well, form? Well, so home education was always my default because I am going to definitely you know, say that kids want to be with other kids. They don't necessarily want to be with kids just their own age. They want to be with kids who have similar interests. Mm -hmm. So I'm definitely an advocate for mixed age grouping. And the reason I tried to start so many you know, charter schools, Sudbury schools, self-directed learning centers was so that my daughters could be with other kids. And it's a little difficult now because when you hit the high school years, the homeschooling population really drops off. What we know about human development and ages and stages and actually how we learn, you would design the education system totally different. You would look at younger children um, before the age of eight and just let them play and be in nature and cook with you and garden with you and build things because we're designed for active learning that involves our body, not just our brains. You know, kids are not meant to sit, sta sit still and be quiet. They just aren't. They're not little mini adults. So for the first phase, you let them just play and discover a lot of, there's a lot of value for following the trivium around like nine or 11, where you're really introducing the mechanics of language. And that follows to logic or how you, you know, construct logical arguments and spot logical fallacies. So that's like between 12 and 14, the logic stage. And then after 14, you can get into rhetoric where they're learning to art, make arguments and write essays. So it's you're kind of mixing an unschooling approach when they're little and their brains are developing and they just want to be moving and in nature and with animals. And you like you want to instill them an awe of life. Because the one thing that you can look around and see is missing in our society is we don't necessarily see how sacred life is and how miraculous it is and how like you and I being here in this moment is just a miracle. 
Yes, for sure. I mean, we're in sync about that. So I'm just trying to get it to be more practical for people listening to this. Tell things like, hey, I mean, homeschooling, but mixed age groups. So they learn from different different age groups. It's not like you're, if you're five years old, everybody should be in that same, you know, there's a cutoff, all that stuff in the current school uh, system. I was going to say, the reason I wrote my books and I have two courses on my website, soulagency.org. One is on self-directed learning that I did for the California Teachers College that unfortunately we couldn't get funded, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like all, anything you'd ever want to know about how to do self-directed learning. And then my other course is instead of schooling. And so it also goes through like, these are the design principles. And this is what you want to do in different stages. And this is how you handle reading and math and science. So I go into the nuts and bolts of it. I see. Um, but you're not saying I that people say- shouldn't read and, and understand math problems or solve math problems. You're just doing it differently, not in a curriculum, a fixed curriculum. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, if you read Mathematician's Lament, which I have on my, re- I have a whole resource list on my website. That was written by a mathematician who was just really, really criticizing the way math is taught in school. It was interesting, you know, home educating my daughters because even though my my youngest was in school, like I helped tutor with math because they both struggled with it. And they used to look at me and go, mom, like, how come you have to look some of this up? Like, why don't you remember it? And I had to say, because I haven't used it since school, which is crazy. I mean, I took, you know, my economics classes at Carnegie Mellon were calculus. I took advanced statistics, which I actually did use in my consulting with, you know, statistical regression and everything. But the stuff they teach in algebra two, no, I never used it. I don't use it. So why don't we teach them more data analysis so they can, if someone's like trying to pull the wool over their eyes using statistics, which happens all the time, then they would be able to see through that. You know, it's just the math we teach really has the effect of making people feel stupid. And I've worked with so many entrepreneurs who have looked at me and they go, you know, Caprice, I can do math for my business. I can balance my books. I can manage my cash flow. But oh my goodness, I could not do school math. Exactly. You're not saying that people don't have to live lives and do what they need to do to pursue what they are passionate about rather than what they're told to do and what the school and therefore later on the college will guide them to be and then say, okay, now you got to go work because because you have student loans or what have you that you're going right. to work for. I mean, I have four kids and I have now five grandkids. I hope that they're, lis- they're listening to this. I'm not suggesting they go homeschool tomorrow, but at least hear a perspective here. That's You know, um, my, my message is just to empower parents that they can home educate because there's been like a big campaign to convince parents that they need to hand their kids over to experts. And But what I want to tell them, like you're your child's first teacher yes. and you know them better than anybody and you love them more than anybody will. You just have to get over thinking you have to reproduce school at home and you have to trust the child that they came in with a calling. And since they have a unique calling, their soul's calling, their soul knows what they need to learn to fulfill it. You That's know, it's going to be very hard for people to digest. I'm there, but I discovered late in life, you know, so hey, it's just, well, there's nobody to blame. Hard. Yeah, you can't trust your kids if you don't trust yourself. But it can be such a joyful, joyful experience because, you know, as I said, my daughters are 17 and 20 now, and we have the most amazing relationship. And I don't know if we would be so close. I mean, they can talk to me about anything, you know, if we hadn't had that journey together and spent that much time together. And mm-hmm. I, I get it that not every parent wants to do that because I mean so many parents said oh my gosh I can't wait till my kids go back to school they're driving me crazy how do you do a caprice and I just was like well I don't know I like my kid I was a single mom working so it was messy and it was chaotic you know I know there's lots of reasons not to do this but if we can get enough people that feel empowered to try it to trust their kids then you can come together in learning pods and there are some amazing 
teachers who have left the profession because they were so, you know, disgruntled. And so hire them to do a little learning pod for your kids. Like you can be so creative in how you do this. I come from a culture where there was no schooling, you know, for, in India, for instance, of the old, it was always a pupil guru kind of a relationship. So you were with this one person or mentor, or what you want to call it, guru, coach, et cetera, these days, anybody that would be with you up to the age of 13 you know, in different forms. And you're with them six to eight hours a day. And you learn by observing, you learn by practicing, you learn by thinking. I mean, there would there would be, of course, some scriptures or reading and, and what have you, but it was learning through seeing and observing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's sort of what you're kind of talking about in a different arena after all those thousands of years that have passed from that. So you're saying that was the really the right way because it's having the child connect to their divine, you know, source and cre creator from who they really are, right? Is that correct? Right. Right. You know, and I consulted to self-design in British Columbia for 10 years uh -huh. and learned so much working with that amazing team of educators mm -hmm. where we would put the child in the center at the beginning of every school year and ask questions. What are you interested in? What do you want to learn? How do you want to spend your time? Well, how would and they then know? We would do, oh, kids know. They know. I want to cook. I want to learn, you know, how to be better on the trampoline. I want to play the piano. I mean, they know. And it's not like you do that once and that's the plan for the year. You know, no. I would always, we would always do it in these big pieces of paper. They're like a mind mapping approach. How old are these Bro. kids at that age when you were doing that? Oh, we'd start with five-year-olds, you know? I mean, when they're five, you're on the floor with them with crayons and maybe you're doing the writing and the drawing or they're drawing their pictures. They get more sophisticated as they get older. But the message that you're giving the children is so important because they're like, wow, I'm in the center. I right. matter. They, they care. Mm -hmm. You know, and when I started my self-directed learning center in California, I would have families driving like an hour away to join us. And it was mainly a middle school group because that's where mm -hmm. my oldest was at the time. And I remember the first time I did this with a group of kids and a, one of the younger boys, he was, you know, middle school. And he just looks at me and he goes, are you kidding? Like, you care what I want to learn and what I want to mm -hmm. do? I mean, it just like blew his mind and he was never the same kid again. So surely so. that requires then focus on the individual as opposed to being in a classroom with 20, 25 kids, right? How do you change right. that? So you're saying, and is there, is there not a way, I, I know you talked about this on another podcast where, you know, every state has its own requirements as well, which is another crazy right. thing. But then yeah. how do you, you know, is there some sort of a standard that you, okay, so you're now five years old, right up through whatever age you homeschool them. How do they get into college if that's what the goal is next? My Oldest daughter got a free ride to college. She had so many scholarships. <laughs> so, so your homeschool was recognized uh, or homeschooling was recognized. So is there a certificate or something that they have to, you meet the standards um, so they can say they qualify? Yeah. Where at the state I live in, you do it under a homeschool association who gives you the high school okay. diploma and you have to prove all of your activities and grades. And my daughter did dual enrollment at our local community school college. So she went to college with a full year of credits under her belt. She entered as a sophomore. Now she did one semester and this was like this, all the kids are just partying and mm -hmm. doing a lot of things mm -hmm. I'm not interested in doing. And she found it was a waste of time. So mm -hmm. she's working and building her own business. Um, but mm -hmm. you know, she got got in, she got a free ride. So saying that you can't get in if you're homeschooled is, you know, once again, some right. So, so parents listening to this, you know, shouldn't be like disheartened if they have an eight year old who, who could be homeschooled, it's possible. And then you know, and you're giving them totally different perspective. Yeah. That's driven by them, not by the Right. I mean, the thing is what you want your son or daughter to learn or you want you for yourself is you want to learn how to learn. Correct. And we're all uniquely wired differently. 
right? Yeah. It's a neurological embodied process where, as you said, like insights come from, we don't know where, right. like scientists don't even know where consciousness is or where memories are stored. Yeah. I mean, there's like a whole mystery around this, right? If your goal for your child is, I want them to learn how to learn. I want them to discover who they are, what their gifts and talents are, what their interests are, what their calling is, then there's a lot better ways to elicit that from them. Like educate means like to, to pull from, you know, outside, Out, you know? Yep. I mean, there's just better ways to do it than this standardized approach, which, you know, there was a lot of backlash when Common Core came out. It was developed by bureaucrats, yeah. not even educators. We know yeah. so much about how humans develop and the mind works, and none of that is really used in school. That's the sad part. So I think a lot of people are now looking at it. And then, of course, the fact that the pandemic, you know, forced a lot of lot of people to, to be homeschooled uh, and then opened up some eyes. And in other cases, it was like, I can't wait to get rid of this. Let them go back to yeah. school. Right. So it, it, you had all these different reactions to this. So you you hit consciousness since that's a common subject between you and me here. Let's, right. let's talk a bit about because this is bold conscious connections, bold conscious leadership. What practices do you have, uh, Caprice, to stay whatever consciousness means to you? Or maybe you can tell me what that means to you. And then what practices do you have to more aware? That's a good question. I, I definitely spend time in stillness every day and I do pray, but my prayer isn't for supplication or, you know, I was raised with this view of, you know, I was raised in a Methodist household, this view of um, like God is this old man on the cloud kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? It was either the punitive father, if you did something wrong, you'd get in trouble, you sinner. Or if you were in a tight spot, you'd like pray to God as if like God was like Santa clause you know right, right. <laughs> so i've grown past those ideas i have a very personal relationship with my creator i don't know i try and feed every day just by mm -hmm. being being silent, silent. Okay. i ask a lot of questions when mm -hmm. i'm not sure i get some really excellent answers when i'm not expecting them mm -hmm. i've also been a student for the past several years of non-duality so there are some non-duality teachers that i really really like let's so talk about what that is what does it mean a lot of people listening to this may not know what you mean by non-duality non-duality is the understanding that we are creating our experiences moment to moment through our beliefs of what's real and true. I think the normal human experience is to believe that we are just separate beings, separate physical bodies with the brain. We're all separate from each other. We're separate from the world. There's an external world out there that can harm us that we don't have any control over. So that's kind of like the victim consciousness you and I yes. have spoken about. I fall into that. Of course, yes. I was. that was how I was programmed. So it's yep. not like, I've escaped that, but then I can realize, oh, <laughs> look where I just went with that. You know, that doesn't feel good. I'm really suffering here. Mm -hmm. And through the process of observing, you put a little distance between yourself and your experience. But what I've really been playing with and trying to live more in the moment is realizing that every experience I have is being created by my mind. And it's being created by my mind through the filter of my beliefs about who I am and what the world is. So if I believe that I am the separate caprice, then I'm going to experience the world and myself differently. But if I can say, wow, there's this like intelligent energy that's living through me as me, which doesn't disregard the importance of the physical, because I do believe that like me, Caprice is like the avatar for consciousness. I'm here to do something. I'm not just... Mm -hmm 
you know, sitting on my couch meditating, but it's when I take Caprice and all of her problems too seriously, I get into trouble. And then I realize that Caprice, this identity is really just like kind of a accumulation, amalgamation of all of my problems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you have to really have a sense of humor with this stuff, I think. And that's where I categorize as memory, because we are just this body mind full of memories. And then we keep defaulting to that behavior that simply only vindicates itself because it hasn't really learned the mind hasn't learned anything new because it's just the same damn thing and you go wait if you really are able to separate like you said yourself from from the experience for a minute for a second that's where all the realizations and revelations occur it's not about good bad or ugly beautiful or whatever it's just like you have that perception that you and in your practices of silence i'm sure that's how you start sharpening that intuition and then the observance piece of it right well, and like, who doesn't have regrets from their past? Of course. <laughs> yeah, everyone. But the thing is, the past only exists when we think about it. It doesn't exist in this moment. Exactly, so, it doesn't exist. Like dwelling on the past is such a losing game. Like definitely take the lessons that you were supposed to learn and then just move on. And then we also get trapped in our expectations for the future, right? Right. So the that non-duality too. aspect of it is that you're separate from your mind. I'm sorry, that you're not separate from your mind or the experience? What are you... How do you define yeah, it? How could you be, how I have could a you course in duality, so I'm just trying to understand. How can you separate yourself from yourself? You're like Correct. there every moment, you know? So that's why it's um, non-duality. Yeah. And when you, you feel the separation in your thoughts, thinking about the past or worrying about the future, future. then you're kind of lost in there. So um, yeah. since a lot of my listeners are probably, you know, in, in, in maybe they're a middle age group, they're trying to figure out what their life is, whether they are corporate careers, they've done so well, they just still think that like you when you were 30, or I was when I was 49, had this good money, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you go, but I'm not fulfilled, I'm not satisfied. Right. And I'm selfish if I'm not satisfied, right? So I must be doing everything for should be doing things for other people rather than me. And then you fast forward and life goes on and you go, I'm still unfulfilled and unhappy. People that are listening and they're maybe in that situation, I'm not sure. Or it could be that they're only, they're going through a, a, a situation with their relationship or with their empty nester syndrome or whatever, whatever there are. People are always in transition. So sometimes it's about what gives them the courage? What gives gave you the courage to do what you do from having had a successful career, made money, et cetera, but you still realize what, what you realized you talked about earlier. What gave you that boldness? I, yeah, I think it just comes from from love and from service and realizing that when I'm loving, then I'm happy. It's not being worried about receiving love because that's once again, like desire and you get caught in that game, right? Well, I'll feel good when someone loves me. It doesn't usually work out so well, but if you're loving, if I'm loving my daughters, if I'm loving my clients, if I'm loving my work, if I'm just giving as selflessly as I can give, then that is meaningful to me and I feel fulfilled. And, you know, we're really not trained that way, right? We're trying yes. to compete and strive and seek and claw our way to the top. And I guess because I've worked with so many really successful executives that got to the top and we're like, uh-oh, this wasn't it. <laughs> So being loving, because we're all born out of love, right? Clearly. Mm -hmm. So if we are loving, is what you're saying, 
then you feel mm -hmm. the connection with whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's working with clients or yeah. cooking or doing whatever. If it's love that you are being, then right. you feel- You know, one happy. of the more profound experiences I had, my mother passed away 12 years ago and she she's really struggled with her health. So it wasn't a surprise, but I remember having a con the conversation, like I knew this was the last conversation with my mom and she had a really hard life. Mm. She grew up in depressed Appalachia, no electricity till she was 16. A lot Lot of health problems but she looked at me and she said she just wanted me to know that she really really loved me and she wanted me to know that she was so grateful for her life and i just remember thinking wow like she had a hard hard life and she's so grateful and it just made me like really reflect on gratitude mm -hmm. in my life mm -hmm. and so when she did pass away i would feel these waves of extreme grief and I would just be sobbing. I remember standing at my kitchen sink, just sobbing, mm -hmm. but it was in a background of gratitude. Like I was grateful that I could experience that grief, that I was here to experience it. So it's, if you can get to the point where you even love your suffering, but mm -hmm. you, you do that because you realize that, well, you know, probably a lot of your interpretations are creating that suffering, but it's there as a gift for you. Well, one of my mentors says that suffering is a choice. Pain is real, physical mm -hmm. or otherwise, the grief, loss of somebody, mm -hmm. choosing to suffer it versus taking it as it is because you're having a human experience in that moment. That's learn. a great distinction because when I look back, you know, I was feeling tremendous pain right. with this background of gratitude, but it was pain. But yeah, I, I, I moved through it. I didn't wallow in it and continue suffering because so of how it. can one be more bold in pursuing what you deeply desire surrender. or what you believe you're here to do you need to, to surrender the belief that there's a controlling entity with inside of you well and i think that's why motherhood was also such a tremendous gift for me because i do remember being pregnant and this baby's growing mm -hmm. inside of me i had to that point like really really relied on my intelligence you know it's like it was important yeah. to me that people thought I was intelligence and you know, whatever. And then I just realized, oh my gosh, wait, what intelligence is growing this baby? Because if I like sat down and said, I'm going to grow a baby, like, uh, -uh no way. <laughs> So, I mean, and that's just the experience of life. There is an intelligence energy that yes. people call the creator, God, there's so many names for it, but it flows through us, through you. you know, exactly. through our hair and our fingernails and breathes us and beats our heart and is where our, you know, thinking is generated. You don't from. need that. You don't need that much nutrition to do that. It just happens by itself. Right. Right. And then the other reason I'm like so excited about really creating an education initiative for ages 16 and up, which I think is going to be my, the next project I'm working mm. on is because when you look at advances in like the real science, I'm not the school science, but the yeah. real science that shows us, you know, the electromagnetic energy that we are, that we're beings of light, that we emit biophotons, all our cells communicate through biophotons. I mean, it's pretty cool. You can't help but just being like amazed Absolutely. and in awe. Well, this is delightful. Mm. I can keep going. Of course, this is a conversation <laughs> we can take forever, but mm -hmm. I'm going to bring it somewhat to concrete because people like to know, well, what is, what can you give me two, three things to, to hang my hat on? So combination of things. So one is, you know, because there's a lot of leadership people in the group and trying to figure out where there are leaders and what that means is in a corporate or other environments. What would you say are your one or two leadership lessons that you can give to somebody today who's navigating what they believe are completely unusual, uncertain environments or uncertainties of today? I think that 
once you're able to connect to that creative intelligence that flows through you, then it opens you up to like when I work with executives, I help them tap into what I call their strategic intuition, which is always there to guide them if they don't kind of overrule it with their intellect. So really some, you know, I help them with some some practices so that they stay connected with that strategic intuition. And then as a leader, if you can look at every person on your team as the person that you know they can be, like you see their potential and you're helping them to realize their full potential, then it becomes a different game. You're not, you know, looking at this other limited physical being. You're just like, okay, this is a genius in front of me. Mm -hmm. They might've forgotten it. They're creative. And like, so how do I, you know, help hold the genius out of them? Because as a leader, you want to surround yourself with people that are smarter and stronger than you are. You don't have all the gifts and talents. And how does that differ for a solopreneur, which you are as well, am I? Am, and I'm, right. I am. Well, because I still kind of have a team of people that I work with because I don't do it all by myself. Yeah. I know what I'm good at. And um, my strengths, I continue to strengthen. And if I have weaknesses, then I find someone in my circle that my weaknesses are their strengths. You can still work collaboratively sure. with people. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, this has been amazing. And I'm grateful, as always, to, to learn something because I'm always learning something. And so we can't take wisdom and learning for granted. So I appreciate your time and energy that you've put in here to do this yeah. and uh, so i've learned a lot just keep learning every single moment and i'm sure the audience listening if they're still listening or watching i'm sure you would probably want to watch this over and over again because there's so many nuggets you've just dropped so in that context, in that vein, uh, Caprice, what discoveries might you've had in this conversation for the past 45 minutes or so? Well, I'm always learning, <laughs> you know, because it's like, I mean, it's not a scripted conversation. So, you know, intelligence flows through me. And sometimes I'm like, oh, wow, you know, it's it's not, I don't know, one of my favorite non-duality teachers calls himself just the mouthpiece. <laughs> And I love when I work for self-design, one of our principals would say that intelligence does not reside within the individual. It's created in the space of conversation between two individuals, yes. which I just think conversation is like the greatest learning tool ever invented. Absolutely. So I just really deeply appreciate this conversation. And I know for the next few days, I'm going to be reflecting on it and say, wow, look what I unveiled, look what I learned. Well, it certainly flowed is all I can say. So... Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll have you back again, I'm sure on, on and there's, this is a continuum. This doesn't, this doesn't end in whatever form, whether it's me or somebody else, but it's just like, this is awesome. So well, thank you thank so you much for being here. Thank you for the work you do, because we definitely need people to be talking more about consciousness and really, you know, it's, it's, it's where we're, where we are in 2023. Right. Take good care. Thank you. you soon. I really hope you enjoyed this episode today. We strive to bring you conversations that make you think, reflect and perhaps inspire you to take even one little step in your path towards personal growth and greater wisdom. Please download the show or the podcast episode that you just heard and leave us a comment so that we can continue to bring you meaningful and relevant topics in the future. Take care and thank you so much.